All right, if you would, turn in your Bibles, if you have a Bible, to Judges chapter 6. There's a Bible probably under uh, the chair uh, that you're sitting in, or maybe the person next to you. You could ask them if you could reach under their chair to make it uh, not weird. You can pull out your phone, your tablet, whatever. Judges 6, it's in the Old Testament. We are um, starting today uh, the story of Gideon. Famous, famous story. All right, here's how we will start. In the Cold War, uh, the U.S. Navy uh, realized that Soviet uh, submarines posed a major threat to us, to America. Um, And the head of Harvard University's underwater sound laboratory, because that's just a thing at universities, I guess, um, uh, during World War II, um, they they began to to develop some technology regarding um, uh, defenses against submarines. And and the head of this uh, laboratory at Harvard argued uh, that the U.S. Navy could use what, what, what's called the SOFAR channel or the sound fixing and ranging channel to detect submarines. Um, and he argued that they could detect submarines from hundreds of miles uh, away, which is pretty stunning. Uh, this channel, this technology would listen for the sounds that submarines would make from hundreds of miles away. And at the time, submarine technology um, as you probably all know, uh, they were loud, okay? They were diesel submarines, they were loud, so they made a lot of noise, and that noise would travel, the low frequencies would just travel for miles and miles and miles. Um, in World War II, they discovered uh, that, that this was happening, that the sounds from these submarines were just traveling, and so they said, well, we need to start picking up on these sounds. So in the late 50s, the Office of Naval Research funded uh, the American Telephone and Telegraph Company, AT&T, I don't know if they're still in business, but AT&T, they funded them to develop an undersea surveillance system. So they started putting all this equipment um, on on the seafloor. All that's beyond um, my scope this morning. But they began to put uh, all this equipment on the bottom of the sea to to pick up sounds and report these sounds and, and track Soviet submarines. So the whole point was just to sit there and listen. Just sit there and listen to hundreds and hundreds of miles of ocean to figure out, are we picking up a frequency from a potential uh, submarine that we need to be um, on the lookout for? With all of this, with, with probably the hundreds of millions of dollars, however much it was that went into all of this, the hope is to hear nothing. The hope is to listen day in and day out, minute by minute, to listen and listen and listen and, and hear nothing. Right? To go, there's nothing out there, there's nothing way out there that we need to be on guard for. So victory, victory was hearing nothing. Right? It's like insurance. It's like, I don't want a return on my money. Right? I hope nothing comes of this. You know, I don't want my house to burn down. Um, so victory is in what is not being heard. Often in life, um, more is said in what is not said. Often in life, we hear the most in what is um, not said. Sometimes the best word comes through silence. The best word comes through what is not said. When you blow it again, but your spouse doesn't say anything. Not because they're done with you. The opposite. Because they love you. They still love you. They support you. No need to drop the hammer. You blew it again, but you hear nothing. Um, You make a huge mistake, 
but your coworker lets it rest. They don't say anything. Your boss lets it rest. They don't say anything. Again, not because they're done with you. No, because they love you. They support you. No need to drop the hammer. Um, sometimes the best word, the best message is in what we don't hear. It's in what is not said. And in the story of Gideon today, it's exactly, um, exactly what we need to hear is what's not said. In Judges 6, in the story of Gideon, the beginning of the story, the very thing you and I need to hear, whether we know it or not, the thing we long to hear is in what's not said. So if you would, stand with me and let's read a part of this story. Now let me give you, let me give you a little context for what we're going to read. Today is part one of Gideon. Jeff, in two weeks, we'll come back to Gideon and probably do more specifics. I'm going to stay broad macro, um, high-level vision of the story. We're going to talk about the beginning and the ending of Gideon, okay? And so what we're going to read, just so you know some context, Israel has been at peace, relative peace, for the last 40 years. That's where we're at in the story. We've been through a couple judges. They've been at peace. The land has been at peace for about uh, 40 years. That's where we just ended two weeks ago, okay? So um, let's read the beginning. We're going to read Judges 6, 1 to 12, and then we're going to read the ending. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as, as Gaza, and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox, or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock in their tents. They would come like locusts in numbers. Both they and their camels could not be counted, so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. This is, this is the end of the story. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. As soon as Gideon died... The people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Bereth their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. This is the word of the Lord. All right, grab a seat. Lord, we pray that you would bless um, your word. You would send it out, that we would hear it receive it in faith. In Jesus' name, amen. So in the book of Judges, we are always naturally hoping for a, hev- uh, a happily ever after moment, aren't we? We read again and again, we go, is this it? Is this it? Is this the happily ever after moment? And again and again, it's just not. Um, God again and again shows grace and mercy to his people, and we go, this is it. Surely, surely God has intervened, he's delivered them, he's redeemed them. This is, the, this is the moment in time and season of spiritual vitality. 
They're going to stick with Yahweh. They're going to stick with the Lord. Um, Come hell or high water, this is it. And yet again and again, tragically, Judges is just not that kind of story. If you're looking for that story, go somewhere else in the Bible because it's just not Judges. Again and again, we hear what we hear in verse 6. If you have it, you can see it as I point our attention to the word. In verse 6, we read this again and again. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. Now, just to pause for a second on that verse so we don't, so we don't miss this, to step back and, and remember some broad context that is helpful. The book of Judges is cyclical. It's this downward spiral cycle pattern um, into more and more tragedy. And, and the pattern essentially goes like this. Um, Israel has been rescued fundamentally and foundationally from Egypt. They are taking over the promised land. They're taking over Canaan. But again and again, they go after other gods. They rebel, they sin, they do evil, they forsake the Lord. They are given over to their enemies. Kind of a, hey, you can have what you want if that's what you want. They are crushed, they're oppressed, oppressed, they're smashed by the enemies. They cry out to the Lord. The Lord raises up a deliverer, a judge, a savior to go and deliver them, and they are delivered. And again and again and again, they turn back. They turn back, they turn away from the Lord, they turn back to false gods, and so the cycle and the pattern goes. And so it's the tragedy we've come to expect in Judges. The tragedy we've come to expect is, yes, again, Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, before we are too harsh on Israel, we have to understand that Canaan was like the U.S., Israel is this people that's come out of Egypt, have been very nomadic, and they go into Canaan, and it's just like dazzling. Uh, Canaan surpasses them in every way with wealth and art and literature and architecture, and and, and it was a very sensual culture. Um, Baal worship, the religion of Canaan, revolved around sensuality and prostitution, okay, um, engaging with prostitutes was actually how you got Baal to move and do something. So that was the center of their worship. So um, before we're too harsh, we have to understand that the question was not what was tempting for Israel and Canaan. The question was what's not tempting? What, what was not tempting for them? At, at what point could they turn and not be tempted to, to forsake uh, the Lord their God. Uh, judges in this way is a mirror. It is a mirror to us that, that we go, yeah, that's, that's just like us. We live in a land just like that, that at every turn, every time I turn on Netflix, it's like I'm tempted to forsake God for a few moments, okay? At every turn in where I live, just like where they were in Canaan, um, it, it's not what's tempting, it's what's not tempting. What is not, when am I not tempted um, to forsake the God I love. So if we're honest, if we're honest, we're just like them. We're in a situation just like uh, them. And uh, this story in Judges 6 is a microcosm of the whole story of Judges and really the whole story of the Old Testament and really the story of humanity. Um, We have, the fact of the matter is, we have an insatiable bent towards sin. We have an insatiable bent towards sin. And early on when you become a Christian, and maybe this is you this the morning, you're like, ah, basically sin is done in my life. And yes, every now and then I sin, but it's essentially an accident. Um, and honestly, someone else made me do it. Right? Early on, that's how we think. 
But then we grow a little bit, and we get to know our sin a little bit more, and we start to fail. And the, the more we grow in the Christian life, we start to realize, man, I'm a bit more of a sinner than I thought. I thought this was dealt with when I came to Christ, but apparently it was not fully dealt with. And I'm, I'm more sinful than I dare to admit to myself, quite frankly. Um, I still have this bent. And we realize that sin is not just like the things we do, but it's like this compelling power within us. This draw, this bent, this, this pull away from the Lord. And we realize we're no match for it. I mean, some of you know you've walked with the Lord long enough that you're like, yep, yep, that draw is still there. And I've realized, like, I'm no match for it. I just can't defeat it um, on my own. We can't fix our own hearts. We can't fix our own hearts. So Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And here's the result in verse 6. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. Now, there are two words that need to pique your attention in Judges, and really in the Old Testament, give and with. Um, with. You want to hear that the Lord is with you. You want to hear that. That's, that's his uh, one commentator called a trump card. God, I'm too weak. I don't know how to speak. How am I going to prophesy? And what am I going to say? And I'm too weak for this army. And God would just go, don't worry, trump card. I'm with you. Okay, you want to hear that. There's another word, give. You want to hear God has given uh, your enemies into your hands. You want to hear that. You don't want to hear what we just heard. God has given you over to your enemies. God has essentially given you exactly what you want. Uh, you don't want to hear that. So Midian dominates Israel. As we just read, they, they ransack Israel time and time again. Their crops would grow, time for harvest, and the Midianites would come in and just wipe them clean, just living off of um, their livelihood. And so in verse 6, it says, And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. Israel hits rock bottom um, because of Midian. They feel miserable. They're in pain. They're desperate. They're dying. They're getting crushed by the enemy. And so again, we read in the cycle and pattern of Judges, And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. Now, this is key to understand in the book of Judges and key to understand here. This cry to the Lord, though we read it like repentance, is not repentance. Um, this is a cry for help. From I'll take help from anyone and everyone. This word does not carry with it in itself repentance. One commentator looking at, I think it's maybe 16 times or so that it shows up in the Bible, I think particularly the Old Testament, most of the time has nothing to do with repentance. And even the few times, maybe two or three times, that maybe it, it, it has to do with repentance, the argument weighs on the side that it doesn't. It's not a cry of repentance. It's a cry of pain. I mean, perhaps before they cried out to Yahweh, they cried out to Baal. Can you do something for us? Maybe they cried out to the stars. Maybe like the Little Dipper can help, you know? Someone help us. We're getting smashed. Oh, I, we remember Yahweh. Oh, yeah, remember how he brought us out of Egypt? Maybe he'll help us. They just cry out in pain. One commentator wrote, as we have come to expect, we've come to expect this in Judges, there's no hint of repentance, only a cry of pain. If anything, even as they cry out to the Lord, they're blaming him. God, you have forsaken us. You have been faithless towards us. Maybe prove that you're actually good and save us now. 
That's probably how most of the, uh, Israel is actually thinking. What happens next really shows this. Look at verse 8. It says that in response to their cry, and this is unique in the cycle, it's unique in the pattern, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel. Okay, so this doesn't sound super helpful. Israel cries out in pain, Lord, we have no food, we don't have a future, we're dying, and God goes, don't worry, I'm going to send a car mechanic. Right? Like, how does, Lord, we're being ransacked, we're being uh, smashed, don't worry, I'm going to send someone to preach a sermon. Like, not super helpful, right? So what is, what is going on? This almost seems like cold, almost cruel. What's going on here? Let's read what this sermon, this prophet says in verse 8. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt, and I brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you, and I drove them out before you, and I gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you Dwell. Now, think. Think about this. Israel probably thinks, just like Gideon, later in the story, Gideon is going to say, why has all this happened to us? Why are we getting smashed? The Lord has forsaken us. That's how Gideon thinks. That's how Israel thinks. They think merely in human terms, like they're not thinking of God at all, and they're just thinking, we're just too weak for the Midianites. We just need to grow our army. Or, and or, they're thinking in theological terms, like I said, blaming God, that this is all, this is all God's fault. We'll still cry out to him to see if he'll help us because we'll take help from anyone at this point. Um, that is how they are thinking. And so God hits the pause button. He hits pause. He sends a prophet to interpret what's going on. Israel, I want you to see. I want to help you see what's actually happening and what's actually going on. And he, he goes on, uh, you think I've forsaken you. But I, isn't it I? I am the one who brought you out of Egypt. I am the one who's delivered you again and again. I am the one who's rescued you. I am the God of grace. I am the God of mercy. I am the one who has loved you. I am the one who has been faithful. I've given you every reason to trust me. I've given you every reason to love me, every reason to worship me. Um, not only that, I've warned you. I warned you that if you walk away from me, there's only judgment. There's only justice for you if you walk away. I warned you ahead of time again and again. But then he ends in verse 10. But you have not obeyed my voice. So God sends a prophet to preach a sermon to open their eyes, to open the eyes of the blind, to open the ears of the deaf, to interpret what's actually going on. I have loved you and you have forsaken me. I have come after you and time and again, you have run away from me. Israel, that is what is going on. Now, when I read this first, as I was preparing, studying this text for this sermon, when I read it, it felt cold. It felt cruel because it felt like, like an I told you so moment, like a kick you while you're down. And, and perhaps it felt that way because that's what I'm like, you know? I know none of you have ever, ever done this, but when your kid does something that you've said a thousand times not to do, and they do it, and they get hurt, and they start wailing, 
Um, again, I know you've never done this, but it's like the first thing I'll think and say is like, dude, I told you, I told you, if you do this, it's going to hurt you. You know, and literally he's in front of me just like sobbing in pain, you know, and you're like, dude, you're the cruelest, coldest person I've ever seen, right? Um, I do. That's what I'm like. And so I go, yeah, I bet. oh, that makes sense. That's what God is doing. Israel's in great pain, and he's just like, you dummies, I told you, I told you. See, I told you so. It felt like that just kicking them while they're down. But, but then I kept reading, and, and it, I realized what's not said. I realized, as I read this, what is not said that I fully expected to be said. The unthinkable, unimaginable, unexpected, truly surprising is in what is not said in this moment. Look how it ends. Look at verse 10. Look how it ends. Look how the passage ends. But you have not obeyed my voice. Verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah. Wait, wait, what? Where's the rest? Where's the rest of the sermon? One commentator said, this is like a joke without a punchline. It's like saying a rich man and a poor man and an astronaut walked into a bar. And then an angel of the Lord went and sat under something I don't know what it is, an Ophrah. You go, hey, hold on, you didn't finish the joke. You didn't finish the story. You didn't finish the sermon. After you have not obeyed my voice, I fully expect pronouncements of judgment. That, that's how it rolls in the Old Testament a lot. If you've ever read Ezekiel, Jeremiah, you haven't obeyed my voice and therefore judgment one, judgment two, curse three is on the way. Brace for impact. That's how these sermons end, but we don't get it. We do not get it. It's just not there. It's not there. Instead, we get the unthinkable, unimaginable, unexpected, truly surprising in what is not said. In what is not said. This is what we get. Look at verse 12. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him, speaking of Gideon, and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Remember, give and with. You want to hear God has given your enemies into your hands, and you want to hear the Lord is with you. In other words, the angel shows up, and there it is, and says, the Lord is with you. The angel shows up and says, good news, gospel, grace, mercy. The Lord is with you. We expect to hear, this is what this means. We expect to hear, but you have not obeyed my voice, so here comes judgment. You're not even repenting now. You're just exhausting all options for help. So here comes judgment, but what we see is the unexpected, the surprising. What we see happen and what we hear is you have not obeyed my voice, but good news I'm here. You have not obeyed my voice, but good news, I'm coming again for you. You have not obeyed my voice, you're not even repenting now, but I'm going to rescue you. 
I'm here. I'm with you. That is what we hear and see. The Lord is with you. To hear that is to hear the unimaginable message of grace and mercy for sinners. In this moment, God sees Israel's misery and pain, and he can't stand it anymore. He will not stand by and tolerate it anymore. He's coming. He's coming again. In fact, he's here. Now, you might think, yeah, but Colin, what about repentance? Don't we need to repent? Don't they need to repent? We have a tendency to think that repentance is the one little work we do that opens heaven and pulls God down. Like he's just looking across the earth for not good people, because there's no good people, but at least good people who know they're bad and they're repenting, and those people who will give grace to. That's how we have a tendency to think of repentance, is that last and only little work we need to do and drum up within us to get God to come out of heaven. But where does faith and repentance come from in the first place? We affirmed it a minute ago in the service. Where does it come from in the first place? Where does a repentant heart come from in the first place? Certainly not you and me. God looks on miserable sinners and says, I'm coming to bring you repentance. I'm coming to bring you faith. I'm coming to bring you home to me. So what does God actually do? What does he do here? He sends another deliverer. He sends another savior, a little-known guy named Gideon. Now, hilariously, the messenger shows up to Gideon and says this, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Y'all, if you read Judges on your own and you read between the lines, it's hilarious. It is an absolute dark tragedy littered, littered may be too strong of a word, but I can't think of another one, littered with funny. One commentator said, God wants you to know the tragic story of your sin, but because God loves you and is with you, he lets you laugh through it. Judges is funny, God is funny, because if you know Gideon's story, mighty man of valor is a laugh out loud moment in the book of Judges. Uh, Gideon can be summarized with one word, Weak, weak, not might, not power. Just a little sampling three times in Gideon's story. He asks God for a sign to prove God's word to him. He does things at night. God tells him, go do this. He waits for the sun to go down because he's scared of other people. He does things at night out of fear. At one point, God whittles his army down to 300 people to prove that they are utterly weak and that it's his power at work. At one point... God tells Gideon to go do something, and rather than waiting on Gideon to, to say, God, can I have a sign, which is what Gideon usually does, God goes, hey, can you go do this for me? And by the way, if you need a sign because you're scared, I'm going to show you one over here. And Gideon's like, I would like to take you up on the offer of the sign. I'm terrified, okay? He's weak. One commentator said, Gideon not only does all he can to evade the call of Yahweh, but in the end, he abandons God. He is not heroic. He's not in himself a mighty man of valor. He is not a tip of the spear warrior. He's timid. He's unsure. He's fearful. He lacks faith. He's full of doubt. He's unsure. Where does God, God shows up to Midian, and we don't have time for all these details. Maybe Jeff will get into him in two weeks. He's hiding. God literally shows up like hide and seek, and he's like, hey, buddy, I found you. Come on out. Gideon's weak. At the end of his story, I told you I would tell you, I think I said I would tell you the beginning and the end of his story. At the end of his story, God does deliver Israel again. 
He delivers them again through Gideon, but Judges is not a happily ever after story. It's not a happily ever after story. Gideon is not just weak, but much worse. Gideon um, accelerates Israel's movement back into rebellion. Okay, that's how Gideon's story ends. As we read, he makes this priestly garment at the end of the story, and we're told that all Israel whored after it. And it became a snare for Gideon and his family. Again, idol worship. Again, idol worship. And then we're told in verse 33, at the end of the story, as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Barith their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them. So whoever Gideon is and all the details, he doesn't fix the problem. He does not fix the problem of sin. If anything, at the end of his life, at the end of his story, he accelerates Israel back into it in even worse fashion. Things just get worse, and Gideon is actually an instrument and a part of it. In other words, the insatiable bent towards sin is still there. Whatever good happens in the story of Gideon, in the end, the insatiable bent pull, draw towards sin away from the Lord is just still there in full force. It's still there, and Israel is no match for it. And not only is Israel no match for it, none of the deliverers can beat it. None of the judges, none of the saviors, none of the redeemers that God sends out can fix it. They can't fix the problem of sin. They cannot fix the human heart, is what we see in the story. We're looking for the happily ever after, but Judges is saying something different. Every story in Judges is saying, let me tell you about another failed savior, another failed redeemer, and another temporary deliverance. Here we go. Okay, now that that one's over, let me tell you about another failed savior, another failed deliverer, and another temporary deliverance. Okay, that one's over. Let's do it again. And again and again, Judges moves on. But, but the real message of Judges the real message of what Judges is actually saying is in what's not always explicitly said. The real message, the, the unthinkable, the unimaginable, the, the surprising, is in what's not explicitly said throughout Judges. Gideon, the story of Gideon, the book of Judges, is saying, let me tell you about another failed savior but it's also saying, let me tell you about another failed savior and another temporary deliverance to point you in the direction of a final savior and a forever deliverance. Let me tell you about one more failed savior so that I can point you in the direction of the final savior. Let me tell you about one more temporary deliverance so I can point you in the direction of a forever deliverance. Hebrews says it like this, speaking of the judges, Hebrews says they didn't receive the promise, the full promise, because God had provided something better for them. There was something better. Judges is saying again and again and again, even with Gideon, there's something better to look forward to. There is something better. There's a better salvation and there's a better deliverer. There's a better savior on the way. What did God actually do to deliver Israel in this story? He sent a deliverer, Gideon, to save them through weakness. What did God do to finally and fully and forever save you and me? He sent a deliverer to save us through 
weakness. When the final deliverer showed up, he didn't come with a sword in his hand. He didn't come with a sword in his hand. He came in compassionate, tender weakness as a frail little baby. Weak, as weak as it gets. And he came to deliver us and to deliver you by being delivered over. By being delivered over in weakness. Again and again, Jesus would tell his disciples something like this. The son of man will be delivered up to be crucified. That's not like the war cry anthem you want to hear from your leader. I'm going to be delivered over to be crucified. Weakness. Second Corinthians says that Jesus was crucified in weakness. But the Bible says the weakness of God is stronger than the strength of men. Why? Why was Jesus delivered over? Because the weakness of God is the power of our salvation. The weakness of God is your salvation. Romans 4 says Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses. Galatians, Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Colossians 1, Jesus has delivered us from the domain of darkness. 1 Thessalonians 1, Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. All by being delivered over in weakness. Out of compassion for us in the misery of our sin and our pain, Jesus was delivered over for you. He was crucified in weakness, and on the cross, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what does he hear back? What does he hear back from the Father? Nothing. Nothing is said. He hears nothing. He wasn't delivered from the cross. The Father could have taken him off the cross. He could have taken himself off the cross. He wasn't delivered on the cross or from the cross. He wasn't delivered from it. He bore the cross. He bore the wrath you and I deserve. He bore the judgment that you and I deserve. And in what was not said on the cross, when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He hears nothing. Nothing is said. No deliverance comes for Jesus. He's delivered over. And in what is not said, you and I are saved. In what we don't hear, we hear the gospel. We hear good news. Good news. The Father didn't respond and take him off the cross and put you on it. No, the Father turned his face. Jesus bore the punishment so that you never have to, so that you don't have to bear the cross. We are saved and delivered by the weakness of God through the cross of Jesus Christ. So, Take to heart this morning, this week. Take to heart and remember the unexpected, unimaginable, surprising mercy and grace of God that came for you before you ever had a thought of him. He came after you. He brought you home. He brought you repentance. He brought you faith and he rescued you. Trust God's grace that came for you before you ever cried out for him. Before you ever cried out. He came after you. Amen.